Today's episode of Opera After Dark is brought to you by Opera Philadelphia. Opera Philadelphia presents the world premiere of Denis and Katya, part of Festival 019. The latest from Philip Venables and Ted Huffman, Denise and Katya explores what makes us click in an age of 24-7 digital connection. Open September 18th. More at operaphila.org. That's operaphila.org. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Opera After Dark. So, Naomi, Elspeth, what exactly are we talking about today? We are fulfilling a listener request. Listener request! Yay, thank you, Jordan. I hope that is your name. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Thank you, Jordan from Chicago. Jordan from Chicago, thank you for your request of what we should talk about in an episode uh, if you, listener, have your own requests, you can always hit us up at operaafterdark.com. Yep. And we'd love to hear your requests. It certainly is helpful to know what our listeners would like to hear. Yes. Yeah, so Jordan sent us a bunch of different options, all of which, by the way, involve heavy doses of sexual violence. So we're going to try and make this <laughs> oh, as funny God. as possible tonight, but we'll see what happens. They're all tragic operas. They're all pretty heavy. Um, and this one in particular was very interesting that it popped up as a request because I feel like this is an opera that when I first saw it, I definitely did not like it, but Mm. yet it has followed me around for years because it's actually very interesting, like the issues it brings up and the history of it. But my first encounter with it was so off-putting that it's like the opera I can't shake, basically. It might be one where if somebody just like on the street or very randomly was like, can you tell me a scandalous opera? It would probably be one of the first ones to pop in your head. Oh, definitely. If you're an opera person, it is like the success from scandal story. Yeah. Um, especially in 20th century opera. Well, what are we talking about? <laughs> You'll all know that from the title of the episode that we're talking about Zalame by Zalame. Richard Strauss. Yep. So this is an opera that was premiered in 1905, mm-hmm. and it's an opera that a lot of people perceive as being like an earth-shattering moment for Strauss, for opera, for tonality, for all kinds of reasons and things. And so, so wait, before we get really into it, where does Salome, Salome, excuse me, uh, fall in sort of like? Strauss's output. The this grand is like output. This is like pre Dia Rosenkavalier, yes. pre Ariadne of Naxos. Yes. So pre Die Frau und Schatten, which I just like saying. <laughs> Die Frau. Die Frau und Schatten. I don't know. I'm asking you. You're oh, the doctor. Okay. Um. <laughs> Tell us, doctor. <laughs> Tell us, Doctor Baratera. I don't know the exact date of Die Frau und Schatten, but I know that Electra comes after this, mm. right, as does Der Rosenkavalier. Right. And so Strauss, from what I remember of studying Strauss's life and output, he tended to, like, work on different genres of things in blocks. And so he has, like, blocks of time where he 
worked on the symphonic tone poem. And then he had blocks of time where he worked on like art song and mm-hmm. um, symphonic things. And then he has blocks of time where he, he kind of tinkers in opera and works in opera throughout his career, but the style shifts depending on kind of where in his career you're looking at that moment. And so in within that kind of his operatic output, he has these blocks of stylistic things that he's kind of obsessed with or playing with or exploring. And so Zalame is this turning point because all of a sudden he comes out of the gate with Zalame and it's, it's this extremely chromatic musical language. It's like not quite a tonality, but it's like pushing chromaticism to the extreme and it really broke with everything that he had done before that in opera and then and with symphonic things as well. And then he has Zalame, he has Electra, and then he like takes this dramatic like 180 stylistically and he reverts back to what we call neoclassicism in Der Rosenkavalier. Mm-hmm. And so Right. So Rosenkavalier is like Strauss decided he wanted to write in the style of Mozart. Right. And <laughs> definitely and it is a comedy. It's supposed to be a comedy even though it has some, you know, serious dramatic things right. that happen. The second act is not funny. Right. Not and funny. it's just long. <laughs> like so many second acts like so many right. second acts I'm just get to you, the duets people looking at you tales of hoffman i like oh. that act well what version of the tales of hoffman are we talking about i'm talking about the one with the what's her name the one that dies antonia, antonia. they all die that's true juliet doesn't die that's true she, she goes like, off in a gondola also, with her diamond olympia is a robot so She's an automaton, which is different from a robot. Automaton. Which, if is you read my your, dissertation. I was going to say, is that in your dissertation? So would you wouldn't consider her sentient? No, I would not. Oh, God. But she could, anyway. We could go deep on this. Yes. Okay, well, we'll save it for another episode. episode. What yes. we were trying to say is that Strauss's style had an evolution and... Re- yeah, reverting, what were we trying re- to Reverting say? back to... Neoclassicism. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Yes. His style changed, different periods of his life. There yes. it is. So before he wrote Salome, he actually didn't write that many operas. He only wrote two. But he was very active as a symphonic composer and art song and that sort of thing. Right. Um, so his first two operas were more in these earlier styles that he was tinkering with. They're not very popular. And then Salome kind of like puts him on the map as this incredible force in dramatically compelling and question yes did he have a mustache did strauss have a mustache <laughs> it's extremely important i mean i think so you can tell that in, i feel like he did like a this big episode, old walrus mustache in this episode <laughs> we're on the second glass of wine yes <laughs> so we get a little bit more questions yes so many questions so yes on the mustache <laughs> thank god it's not that big though it's sort of like a 70s creeper uncle porn stash yeah Don't see it uh yeah <laughs> i don't i don't want to ruin this guy for you elspeth but i had actually heard from somebody recently and i have not researched to substantiate this on my own heard from richard strauss no i heard from someone okay not from what him, okay that Richard Strauss was very popular within the Nazi party and was like one of their Oh, was he? One of their dudes. He had a very complicated relationship with them and there's a lot of 
let's say, debate about whether or not he actually wanted to be like a poster mm-hmm. boy for the Nazi party or if he was just appropriated appropriated by him or by them because from what I remember reading and again I haven't read up on this fairly like in recent years but he even though he was kind of loved by the Nazi party and his music was used in kind of a propaganda type of way as like great German music he also kind of adamantly employed and collaborated with different Jewish musicians and Mm -hmm. kind of refused to not do that. Um, And so there's people have long argued about where his allegiances actually Mm -hmm. were. Um, But there is certainly a complex history there that musicologists are still exploring, like what it all actually means. Worth mentioning. Right. Which is also like kind of interesting because I'm pretty sure um, that these works in this block of time, his expressionist period, so to speak, quote mm-hmm. unquote, mm-hmm. Um, in opera, would not have been very favorable in, in the Nazi style. Like Zalman right. Electra are not works that were used as like examples of great German music. Yeah. They definitely were kind of like shoved down <laughs> into the corner as. Yeah, don't worry about this. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. We're not talking and we'll, just, about we'll just focus on um oh, what is it? Thus spake Zarathustra. Or is that Thus Sprach Zarathustra? Right. Yeah, the great tone poem ah. um, that's used in the opening of 2001 Space Odyssey. Oh. Yeah. With the monkeys. Right? That yes. should be the opening when we do an episode on cyborgs in opera. Cyber narrative. <laughs> Cyber narrative <laughs> in opera. That should be it. Yeah, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that movie is all about AI. It is. Yes. I'm sorry, I can't do that, Dave. You know, I've never seen right. that movie. Classic. I know, I know. I've, it's hard to watch seriously it's a hard movie to watch it can be but it is very good and there's actually like a story about the music in that too because apparently they hired a composer to write the music and then when um the director who i know i should know whose name is totally escaping me right now um when they saw it with the soundtrack that the composer had created they did not like any (laughs) of the music this sucks and without they didn't tell him the composer they didn't tell him and i'm pretty sure that it's um oh why can't i think the same guy who did uh dr strange love why is this so hard stanley kubrick stanley kubrick yes um when stanley kubrick saw when he Mm. saw the work with the composer's new score he did not like any of the music and so he scrapped it all and he went through and chose classical music pieces instead so that when it premiered in theaters the composer who wrote like an original score was like, he, like he came to the premiere and sat down and then like they didn't use any of his didn't music any of his music it's not my music it's kind of douchey that's not right. my music <laughs> right <laughs> so zalame so the story of zalame mm-hmm. is you know, several degrees down the line is based on the biblical character of Zalame, Princess Zalame. And in the Bible, she is known for, I think her story is told in the book of Judges. 
And she is known for being like the stepdaughter of Herod. Mm-hmm. And um, Herod has this big party. He gets drunk with all of his friends. And then he looks at Zalame and, and he's like, she's pretty good looking. I would like her to dance for me. And so Zalame dances before Herod. And then Herod is so taken with her performance that he says... I will give you anything your heart desires. Just name what you would like as a gift for this dance. And Zalame's mother in the biblical account, who is, I think, Herodias or like Herod's wife at the time. Mm-hmm. She says to Zalame or Zalame says to her, what should I ask for? And her mother says, you should ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so she asks for that. And then Herod tries to offer her other things instead and she says no that's what i want and so that event is what leads to the execution of john the baptist and his head is presented to zalame on a platter that is is all that is told that all features in the opera generally it's a little bit different it's very different in the opera opera. now that i think about it i don't think this can be the book of judges because john the baptist is new testament so well, luckily, nobody <laughs> nobody so has. We don't have a New Testament. <laughs> n- nobody has ever claimed that this is a biblically accurate podcast. This is so. true. This is true. Um, anyhow, <laughs> to Bible chat, <laughs> right? Right, really covering the gamut. We are. But there is in the opera there is a head on a silver platter. Yes. Is that a spoiler? So what happened was um, in this wild expressionist period at the beginning of Ba-doom-psh. the. 20th century um oscar wilde <laughs> there it is <laughs> what? that was the pun the that was the pun oh you didn't hear my my drum know. hit i was just like you're drunk i didn't know what you were doing my drum my drum hit and she said yeah in this wild time i didn't get it gosh I missed it we yeah well it. now hopefully everybody gets it it's a wild time and we have a work that's adapted everyone's by laughing oscar wilde Everyone's laughing that's listening to this right now. You're yes. making fun of me. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> so Oscar Wilde. Wrote mm-hmm. a play. Wrote a play called, called Salome. Salome. This is Salome. a wonderful in tandem presentation. <laughs> <laughs> and then at the time, I believe he wrote this play and it was considered way too scandalous to stage in France. And so then it was like translated into other languages. And, um, and, and then... The, the scandalous thing about... Salome, which you the play the play which you glossed over because I guess that doesn't happen in the Bible I don't know or they just don't talk about it is that this dance that she does is because her stepdaddy has a hot for her right yep it's dance that she does it's a really famous piece of music in the opera it's called the dance of the seven veils where theoretically the singer it's not theoretically it's, it's supposed to be the singer often it is not um basically does a seven minute strip tease and ends up naked and that's why Herod is like whatever you want. I will give you. Mm-hmm. Um, so the full Monty, the full Monty, and so it was considered way too scandalous. Right. I mean, you have to imagine what is it? What did you say? Nineteen oh five. Nineteen oh five is the opera. Right. So to have a naked person on stage in nineteen oh five when people weren't like showing their ankles in public. Right. And the play was preceded that by yes. a, right. a couple right. of years. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it actually there's like a whole history of how. The Dance of the Seven Veils in the play, like, has this big history in, like, popularizing 
erotic dancing and mm. women in and like but also tying it into all of these like exoticized and orientalized depictions of women and so right. like merging this idea of Zalame dancing before Herod with like belly dancing and and striptease and this kind of thing um and then in opera like to then make it into an opera it was definitely considered scandalous that a woman would like take off her clothes or that the soprano would be a asked to dance in a sexually suggest- suggestive manner on mm-hmm. stage and then b asked to take off her clothes right on stage. also it's a role that not anybody can sing vocally it's you super know vocally demanding. It's so hard yeah. it's and it's further complicated by the fact that you need a voice that's like a Wagnerian soprano, mature voice with right. lots of strength and heft. But the character is supposed to be like a 13-year-old girl. Right. right. And so you need someone who can pull off that duality, which is very hard. I yeah. fact-checked this, and in the biblical account, Zalame is mentioned in the book of Matthew and Mark in the New Testament. Okay. She's also mentioned in a few sources um, – called Jewish Antiquities, where she is part of, like, the historical count, mm-hmm. account of that time period. Very interesting. So Oscar Wilde writes this play. Mm-hmm. It's very scandalous. It's translated into a couple of different languages. And then uh, a German by the name of Hedwig Lachmann translates it into German. And this is what the libretto is. Okay. Um, he is the librettist, Hedwig Lachmann. And it is a German translation of Oscar Wilde's original. And Oscar Wilde himself was a pretty wild guy. Uh-huh. Da dum ching. I mean, we did it. We did it. Like, I mean, <laughs> wow. I'm right there with you. Wow. I, yeah. Okay. I, but, I thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. You know how much I love the puns. Mm-hmm. I don't know that much about Oscar Wilde, but Elspeth, you know a few little tidbits. Yeah, so Oscar Wilde, pretty famous guy. Playwright, novelist, right. super popular in the statue, Victorian. Statue of him in Dublin. Period. St. Stephen's Green. I think so, in. yeah. Maybe, so it's, maybe it's a different park. He but, wrote yeah. Salome. He also wrote a bunch of really famous plays, like The Importance of Being Earnest, which is still done to this day, and um, a really popular novel that he's known for, which is The Picture of Dorian Gray, right. which like, everybody had to read in middle school. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. In Canada, you had to do that? No, I didn't oh. have to read it. But, <laughs> but you were particularly I do remember reading well read. it yeah. in like middle school, high school. So it was, he moved in very sort of highfalutin, aristocratic and artistic circles. He bucked a lot of Victorian trends. You know, Victorians are very like buttoned up and he wore his hair too long like the Beatles um, <laughs> and wore like colorful silks and flamboyant clothes and things like that. And it was sort of um, a well kept secret among his friends that he was gay mm-hmm. um he was married to a woman they had two kids um and at the end of his life what sort of happened was he was having an affair with a man named lord alfred douglas who was about 16 years his junior um and lord alfred's dad found out about it and he got pretty pissed and he went to oscar wilde's house and left a calling card uh, saying for Oscar Wilde that grand sodomite or something like that. Mm. And Oscar Wilde saw it and he's like, well, I'm going to sue him for libel. So he sues him. The trial does not go very well um, because they can't really prove anything because everyone kind of knows that Oscar Wilde is is gay. So after three days, his lawyer 
was like, we're dropping the case. We're not going to not going to do this. And so because the case got dropped, the court sort of saw it as um, him admitting to his guilt. And in London, in England at that time, um, being gay and a man was illegal. Right. It was never mm-hmm. illegal to be a woman and gay. Fun fact. Huh. Interesting. Right. So um, they charged him with 25 counts of gross indecency. Oh, my um, And he went to trial. All his friends said just go to France just just go to France because apparently after the French Revolution in 1791 France was like it's not illegal to be gay come on down and so nice. they're like just go to France wait it out and he's like no I'm going to trial did not go well why um oh. the defense accused Wilde of soliciting 12 other young men besides Lord Douglas uh like to commit sodomy is what they they called it back then um and also, so the picture of Dorian Gray was super popular when it came out in 1890, but for anybody that's read it, it has a lot of homoerotic themes in it. And oh, so totally. they used that as an example of, oh, this is what he's he's feeling. And so, I mean, long story short, he pleaded not guilty. He got charged. He went to jail. He got sick. He died at the age of 46, the end. Oh, no. Yeah. That's horrible. That's I didn't awful. realize that. I did not know any of that. That's terrible. What year did he die? He died in 1900. So he died before the opera yeah. ever went to the stage. He did. He um, was in jail for two years from 19, 19, 1895 to 1897. <laughs> and they spent the last three years of his life in exile um, in France. Wow, that's too bad. Well, sad story, but certainly great artistic output. It is interesting, too, that his, you know, he's like a literary master and how we associate his book with something that students read in like middle school or high school. I think I was too young to get. I agree. All of the stuff in the picture of Dorian Gray. I remember reading it as just like this crazy spooky story where this guy kept a picture of himself in his attic that was like showed all the sins we could live forever as a beautiful young man. Yeah. I didn't get the other shit that was happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. Yeah, I should probably reread that one. Probably Probably. there's a movie. I don't think it's good. We should reread that book. Yeah. Also, I mean, we can talk about this later. I found out randomly a couple years ago there's actually a Zalame movie. Or that something. does not surprise me. Of the opera or the play? Uh, I know there's a movie of the opera. Maybe it's a movie of the opera. This is one that was, I think, directed by Al Pacino. What? I should have looked. I should have I'm looked more that. into this. And it has <laughs> Jessica Chastain. I only what? Yeah, she's Zalame. I only and maybe they just adapted some themes from Zalame. I only know this because I went to, shoot, I can't remember the name of the program, like in the, the actor's studio or in the artist's studio, you know, that interview series that happens? Yeah, yeah. Uh, downtown. Oh. It's called I, yeah, Wild ahead. Salome. Oh, there you go. I went like randomly, uh, I think my wife got tickets for us to go to this interview with Jessica Chastain, like this live event. And so she was talking about all kinds of different things. And then she was asked about working with Al Pacino. I think this was earlier on in her career. And she was talking about how, like, it was this great experience because he was directing and also acting. Yeah, he says he played Herod, which makes sense. Right. And also, it's an interesting 
I mean, especially for somebody who's early in their acting career to essentially have to do a strip tease, uh, that's a, a big ask. Similarly, a yeah. big ask oh, on the opera stage. It. <laughs> no. It came out in 2014, so actually not oh. that long ago. Wow. Okay. We're going to pause for a quick second so that we can hear a little bit from our sponsor of this episode, Opera Philadelphia. The musical moment you are hearing is by Philip Venables from his album Below the Belt. His next work, in collaboration with librettist Ted Hoffman, is the world premiere of Denis and Katja, part of Opera Philadelphia's Festival 019. Denis and Katja is based on a real-life tragedy that played out live on social media. This visceral production examines the vast public response to the events surrounding two teenage Russian runaways, exploring how stories are shaped in our age of 24-7 digital connection. Denis and Katja at Festival 019, September 18th through the 29th in Philadelphia. Tickets at operaphila.org. That's opera, P-H-I-L-A, dot org. In the opera... In addition to it actually showing you a severed head, like it goes all the way, it follows the story of John the Baptist getting beheaded, there is this dance of the seven veils, which is like Strauss's take on the striptease moment. And so in the Bible, there are not seven veils mentioned, but it becomes like the name of that particular moment. And it's an entirely Mm -hmm. instrumental section in the opera. And so... It's interpreted a lot as her taking off like seven pieces of clothing or things like that. Right. Yeah, pieces um, of fabric or pieces something. Pieces of fabric. And as you can imagine, over time, there's been lots of different interpretations of this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, it is true that when the opera made its world premiere, the soprano who was singing Zalame, uh, Marie Wittig, she refused to do the dance of the seven veils because she said good women, respectable women don't do that kind of thing. Like oh. respectable women at that time were not opera singers, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, ching. No, it's a general rule. Respectable women That's do not true. take the stage like if, at that if time If you were a society period. woman. I think by 1900, like there was somewhat of a like diva mentality established. Like, okay. You know, the... Yeah, well, certainly if the character of tosca was created by then yeah i think Mm -hmm. there there was a kind of accepted occupation for a woman as a singer yeah and even though it was not necessarily what like you know traditional women did right right? um certainly not it was not the traditional path for a woman but they weren't outcast or considered courtesans anymore so in the original performance there was the actress they dropped was in not like a, nude on stage. Oh, they brought in a dancer. They dropped in a little ballerina to do the dance of the seven veils. I feel like they they don't still do it, but that happened a lot. Yes. Yeah. Because sopranos were generally extremely uncomfortable with Understandably so. this particular moment mm-hmm. and did not want to be seen in that light. And so even though in early, like, I'm not 100% sure, but I kind of doubt that they were actually stark naked by the end of the dance of the seven veils in mm-hmm. the early days of mm-hmm. Zalame because that would have been just like 
too much. Yeah. Right? That's the practice now, though. That certainly right? is the practice now. Yeah. 100% naked. And to kind of build on this, it's not just the Dance of the Seven Veils that is considered so scandalous. That's like the first part of this. But then after the dance, when she's given the head of John the Baptist, um, it's pretty much written into the score that she starts kissing and like making love to the severed head right Right. so she meets john the baptist and right she digs it and he's like no thank you right she's and she's supposed to be like a young prepubescent girl who has like a sexual awakening when she sees john the baptist Mm -hmm. and so it's like the first time she's attracted to a man and in this in the opera she keeps saying to him like look at me um kiss me look at me touch me talk to me right and he keeps refusing and so there's this idea that she forces him through his severed head like to kiss her to look at her to please her Mm -hmm. right so she like forces that sexual gratification even though it's like necrophilia so yeah um shocking can we talk about herod for a second well one more thing oh okay before so after that happens the person who witnesses this both herod and herodias witness this like act of making out and making love to a severed head and the soldiers in herod's like entourage witness it and then they're so horrified by what they see that the opera ends with herod saying um crush her to death kill that woman um and then the soldiers crush her to death with their shields and so there's a lot written about how this opera kind of symbolizes the threat of female sexuality and like how liberated female sexuality was so feared at this time that they had to destroy any anything that even appeared to be like a woman coming into her own or determining her own destiny or getting what she wanted sexually so Herod was only sexually attracted to her when she was like a complicit virgin yes cool yeah. Cool, 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 cool. Like disempowered dancing before him. Right, right. Well, I mean, he is painted as a villain in this piece, yes? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like, he is certainly a character that preys upon his stepdaughter. Yes, um, his stepdaughter. Things are right. not great between him and Herodias, his wife. I mean, obviously, she's not totally cool with the idea of him creeping on her child. Right. Yeah. In general, I feel like we don't even need to do an additional plot synopsis right it's like that's basically it it's, a, basically it's, a, it's it, yeah. a one-act opera there's no intermission it's like 75 minutes long right. yeah um it's also very wagnerian in the sense that it's pretty through composed there's a lot of light motifs that are used and so it kind of shows you like an extension of wagner's influence into the 1900s mm-hmm. and so Zalame has her own motif and it's actually one of the first things you hear when the curtain rises it's like and there's no like big prelude or anything like that there's just this ascending kind of clarinet rift it's like an ascending scale and then you hear the Zalame motif um, which sounds like this As soon as the curtain rises, there's one of the servants or slaves is basically 
opens the whole thing by talking about like how beautiful Zalame is. And so she's kind of objectified from the very beginning, right? As this like object of right. the male gaze. And then it goes on from there and she's you learn that John the Baptist is in prison and you hear John the Baptist's motif, which is very different from Zalame. And so Strauss really uses like um, extreme chromaticism for like Zalame's world and um, extreme tonality and diatonicism for John the Baptist. So he has this like C major motif that just sounds different from everything else. And so this is John the Baptist's motif. clarify in german the name of john the baptist is johanahan johanahan Johanahan. (laughs) just fun to say just to be sure and isn't there another tenor in this so it's sort of like a love triangle who's in love with with salome naraboth naraboth who is the like servant slave who at the beginning is like he sucks (laughs) it's kind of funny because that's like the first thing he sings that interval actually he's like look at Salome she looks beautiful tonight right right basically he's just so horrified by the fact that she won't love him the way that he loves her that he kills himself yes yeah that's kind of like a a side tangent fact that gets glossed over a lot because no one cares about you dude (laughs) (laughs) yikes And, and he's like horrified and so depressed that she's like making love to this severed head instead of turning her attention to him that he's like i can't take it anymore and then yeah wow yes well, so there's there's a few really interesting historical things ooh. about this opera okay so um first of all the premiere of this was considered very scandalous and so Apparently, there were a lot of important people in the audience at the world premiere. and Where um, was the premiere? The premiere was in uh, Dresden in 1905. Okay. Um, and actually, right. So the premiere is in Dresden in 1905. And then it was in some of the subsequent performances that some really important people saw this work and so we know that within like the first two years of this work's life that Arnold Schoenberg saw the work Puccini saw the work Alban Berg did Mahler did Hmm. um and people have theorized although there's no definitive proof that Adolf Hitler saw it as well and that he was like extremely taken or affected by the work um although nobody knows Hmm. if he was actually there or not and then it when it came to New York City um when it premiered at the Met, that was its, um, I believe that was its North American premiere, um, the daughter of Pierpont Morgan was in the audience, John oh. Pierpont Morgan, the big like financier, financier mm-hmm. that like built half of New York City. He was part of like the founding members of the Metropolitan Opera Company and his daughter was in the audience and she was so horrified by what she saw that she basically demanded that Zalame be removed from 
the season that it not be performed again. And it basically was not brought back to the Met stage for several decades after that incident. Yeah. So it was performed once. And then she was like, absolutely not, not happening. And then it was like forced to go away for a while. And, and you can imagine that because of all of this like scandal, people talking about it, like this made people more and more interested right. in this work that of was considered course. so scandalous. And so yeah. it's as considered you, this like success from scandal story. As soon as you limit something like that, people are like, I gotta see it. Exactly. I right. gotta see it. And it seems, I think if you don't, if you're not like a, a scholar of art and history and music at this time, it seems a little bit like a curveball, like out of nowhere. Like why would a composer take on this story in the first place but there's actually a ton of interest in Zalame's character at this time um there's not only the oscar wilde play but a bunch of artists became obsessed with depicting her in painting and so there's this big what we call like Zalame craze in art where people were painting these portraits of Zalame and in a very different way than they would have in the Renaissance. Like in the Renaissance, they were painting her because she was a biblical princess. And so mm-hmm. um, she was always fully clothed and like holding John the Baptist's head on a platter, but everything was very pro- proper. And like the focus of the portraits always on like the tragedy of the death of John the Baptist. But then in the early 20th century and like the decade leading up to it, they start painting Zalame with like, translucent fabric over her breasts and you know dancing or like seductively holding a knife or holding the platter with his head on it and so there's this focus on her as this sexualized character and then there's also a few works of literature that incorporate her as well i think flaubert wrote about her a couple of times and um so there's this big salome craze like around strauss happening at this time and so it's not so crazy that he would you know feel inspired to set this to music or turn it into an opera because a lot of people were already interested in this character mm-hmm. and the kind of hypersexualized um ex- like interpolations of her story yeah i feel like even today there's like a bit of a like when you find out that somebody's doing salome for the first time it's kind of like oh yeah and there's oh, a lot geez. of sopranos that have like gone all in all in like committed 200 percent to this and like stripped naked by the end um sopranos have been asked to do some real weird things in the dance of the seven veils there was one really interesting production i saw clips of i think from opera australia where instead of her doing like a strip tease where she ended up naked by the end their take of it was every veil was it was like a quick change costume routine and every veil was like a a different version of an objectified female and so like one of them was like marilyn monroe and then one of them was a french maid and then Mm um one of them was like a schoolgirl, and so it was all of these kind of revealing like objectification of women from different perspectives through the dance of the seven veils so that was interesting yeah um but yes that's it's very common for sopranos to be naked by the end so yeah i know they just did a production of it at this Palato festival down in charleston and when they did the the dance of the seven veils instead of her dancing it was like a, a contemporary production mm-hmm. it was a modern production instead of her dancing it was sort of depicted not in a graphic way that she was letting herod basically rape her Oof. um so then at the end it makes sense when he's like 
and now I'll give you whatever you want because right. you let me have whatever I want oh, kind of thing. But it wasn't done in um, in any kind of like explicit or graphic right. manner. Yeah. Hmm. But, yeah. I remember the first time I ever saw this mm-hmm. opera. <laughs> okay. And it was not a live performance. It was in like my music history survey class in college. And um, the professor at the time was this really fun and amazing music history professor who like really made it interesting and exciting for everybody and when she put Zalame on I think she messed up the timestamps of the clips that she wanted to show us <laughs> so she was trying to show us the dance of the seven veils but instead it was like it kind of fast forwarded to where Zalame is like making out with the head and I can't remember what production it was or who was singing but it in that production like Zalame is is basically like trying to force the head to have like oral sex with her mm-hmm. right and then the professor was so horrified because that was not what she was trying to show us that she was like oh no and then she tried to pause it and then it went into that like slow-mo fast forward <laughs> <laughs> and like the whole class was just sitting there so awkwardly being like what is happening what, what are we seeing oh, right now amazing. Yeah. and we were like and yeah. she felt so awkward and so bad. It's all these college kids that like don't know what they're looking at, and at the same time know exactly what they're looking at. Right, and right. you're like, ah. <laughs> so yeah. That was my first exposure to Zalman. I will never. And it's haunted you ever forget. since. It's mm-hmm. haunted me ever since. My first time seeing it actually was pretty interesting because it was a couple of years ago when it was at the Met, and Patricia Reset was supposed to be doing. Zalame. And I don't know if she ended up doing maybe one performance or even two, but then she had to withdraw. Maybe she didn't do any, but she had to withdraw like last minute the day that I was going to see it. And so there was a cover that was singing the role of Zalame that day. I Sadly, I don't remember her name off the top of my head, but I just remember thinking like, I can't imagine being that cover. We're like yeah. all ready to be a cover at the Met and you find out the day of that you're going to go on to sing a lead role. And that lead role is Zalame. Right. But then to, to add the layer that, yes, and, and it was her Met debut. So oh God. you're having oh. your Met debut in this vocally extremely challenging opera, and we're also asking you to be naked at the end of it. It just seemed like crazy. She did a wonderful job. She sounded very good. You could, oh, great. You could tell that she was very uncomfortable in the dance, um, but I think that was also just because it's like a choreographed dance. Like, yeah, and I'm you, sure she didn't get like on stage rehearsal or anything no, like that. No, if I had to guess, and I don't know this at all, they probably did like an extra, at most, hour long rehearsal with her that afternoon or something. Like, hey, this is the dance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah. And people talk a lot about, like, people have written about how the Dance of the Seven Veils is like, the most erotic music ever written and this kind of thing. And I think to our modern ears, sometimes we kind of laugh when we hear that because we're like, that is not the most erotic thing ever written. But at the time, it was just considered like super hypersexual. And so I think that also, even if the dance is not going well, (laughs) like there's an assumption that the music is going to do some of the work for you. Like the music is going to get you too. Okay. And so there's like, two layers going on right um yeah i but well i probably shouldn't dive down this rabbit hole probably not <laughs> yeah i was just gonna say i f- i feel like in that scenario especially for like an opera company and opera singers probably less is more like 
this shouldn't yeah, be like an elaborate choreographed but it's thing. also long like it is long it is it's long. like seven yeah. minutes long yeah it's yeah. not like a 30 second thing it's seven minutes so. yeah that's true well it's not an opera that will likely unless you're near a major opera house you're probably not going to see it with at least not soon yeah because not only is the title were really demanding. All the roles are really vocally demanding. Right. And it's a huge orchestra. Too. Huge right. orchestra. Yeah. And so it's like this big production, big expense for only 75 minutes of music. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. not often at regional opera companies, although it does appear occasionally. Yeah. But you'll have to, if you really want to see it, you'll have to find it at a bigger house or, I don't know, go to Germany. Might be able to see it there. Right. And I do think that a video of the opera exists somewhere from the 80s maybe yeah well surely 70s early 80s i think there's also a recorded version from the met production that is probably on met player too probably so yeah it's out there if you want to see it there's a there's a lot of clips of it and a lot on dvd as well from different productions over the years um but that's that's zolome anything else that we need to know well i think just from like a purely practical opera production standpoint, um, I do remember a time when I was backstage at the Met for something and I was walking by the prop shop <laughs> and they were doing inventory uh-huh. of all the Zalame heads and you have to make the head look like the singer mm-hmm. who is singing that role. Yeah. And so it's like, ooh, there's Bryn Terfel's head. Oh. <laughs> and so it when does you can require, recognize the head on the planet. Right. It does require a lot of artistry from the prop shop in order to make these severed heads that look like definitely whoever is singing the role of Johanahan. Right. So. <laughs> yeah. That, I feel like that's an endorsement for the Met backstage tour, which you never know whose head you're going to see. It's true. true. You never know. <laughs> that's great. Well, with that, uh, thank you ladies for taking us through this wonderful history of Zalame and its contributors. Thank you, Naomi. A scandalous work. Thank you, Jordan, for your... Jordan, was that? Who gave us the request. Uh, As we mentioned, if you would like to submit a request, find us at operaafterdark.com or on social media. Uh, We would also love it if you could take a moment to leave us a review and a rating wherever Mm -hmm. you listen to this podcast. Uh, That's always helpful as far as getting the word out there on the podcast share it with a friend if you have any opera buddies and as always we love your support through patreon you can go to patreon.com slash opera after dark to support this podcast thank you so much am i forgetting anything i think that's it you covered it all all right i'm kyle i'm naomi and i'm elspeth thanks for listening bye bye, bye.